The LARB Radio Hour is a free weekly podcast of the Los Angeles Review of Books, a reader-supported nonprofit publication. To support our continued work on this show, in print and online, please consider donating or joining as a member today at lareviewofbooks.org slash radio hour. Welcome to the LARB Radio Hour, brought to you by reader-supported LA Review of Books. I'm your host, Kate Wolf, and I'm joined by my co-host, Eric Newman. Hi, Kate. Hi, Eric. And this week, we're listening to an interview that I did with Sasha Fair-Jones about his book earlier. So I was excited (laughs) to hear that we were covering this book because I know Sasha Fair-Jones' work primarily as a music critic whose work appears in The New Yorker and elsewhere. But I realize I don't know really anything about Sasha Frere Jones as a person. Yeah, what was this memoir like? What kind of stuff did you guys talk about? Is it mostly about his life or his work as a critic? Or, you know, where does it go? Yeah, okay. So, right, it's a memoir. I'm glad you pointed that out. And it it <laughs> goes, it's a non-chronological memoir. So it goes a little Ooh. bit of everywhere and... Um, there's a section that's more like kind of a Joe Brainerdy I remember section that's just all I remember that's kind of like encapsulates Sasha's whole life. And then other parts jump around from childhood in Brooklyn to how he began writing his music because he's also a musician and, you know, his relationships. I did not realize, you know, how this would affect me. I assumed I would like it, but something also about delving into the decades and New York at this time, kind of from the late 60s to the 2000s. You know, there was something, even though it's a personal story, there's also a lot of kind of collective history as a part of it as well that I think anyone who lived in America during those years would recognize something of themselves probably in here. If only the songs that were on the radio, you know? Yeah, well, also, I mean, just thinking about the sweep of those decades is like so wild in terms of like not just how America and American culture changed, but like how just the on the ground reality of living in New York changed, you know, and like what kind of, you know, I was there for the like the early 2000s part of that and seeing like all the bands that like came through New York and like, and that also I feel, I wonder if he gets into this. Does he talk about how like music criticism also feels like it changed around like that time, that kind of like nineties into the early 2000s, like pre 2010, like kind of that bookended era. Cause you have the rise of grunge and then a new kind of like indie pop that was also rock yeah, I think there's a, probably because Sasha's a musician, his knowledge of music is a bit deeper than the of average course. show. So it's yeah. a, like a little bit more obscure, a lot of things that are in here. But yes, I think, you know, that another reason that this memoir is nice is it doesn't have that much nostalgia. There's just a lot of kind of at the moment reporting or recounting of what was, you know, more like details and grain as opposed to kind of a nostalgic sweep of what it was like at the time because it's all written in the moment. So it's not looking so much. You kind of make your own conclusions based on the juxtaposed decades, which is nice for those of us who tend towards nostalgia to have some push against that is really good, (laughs) which is definitely my problem. So yeah, it it was a great book and I really enjoyed our conversation and it made me, you know, listen to some old songs again. Oh, that sounds great. Well, should we get to that interview? Let's do it. I'm happy to be speaking with the writer, critic, and musician Sasha Frere-Jones today. Sasha Frere-Jones is the former pop music critic for The New Yorker, where he worked for 11 years, and his writing on art, books, and music appears frequently in publications such as Four Columns and Book Forum, among other places. His bands of the past include Dolores, which he started in college, and UE, which recorded three albums and toured internationally. Presently, he plays with Body Meta, as well as Calvinist and the band Fellas. He joins me today from the East Village in New York, where he lives. He's with me to speak about his first book, Earlier. A non-chronological memoir earlier collects fragments of Frere Jones's life, 
intimate recollections, minor triumphs, path-defining moments, failures, loves, losses, and all stations in between. An artist's formation story that is too humble to declare itself as such, the book enacts the simultaneity of memory, smashing the late 1960s when Frere Jones is born against the 1990s when he arrives back home in New York, falls in love with his ex-wife, the mother of his children, and begins to write in earnest and tour. The 1980s, when he attends high school at St. Anne's and college at Brown and obsessively collects and listens to music, against the 1970s, growing up in Brooklyn, wondering at aspects of his parents' faltering finances and private lives. Like all noteworthy memoirs, it addresses both personal and collective history, pointing to a present bursting at the seams with the past. Thank you so much, Sasha, for being here. Thank you so much for having me, Kate. So I want to start with you just talking about how you began to write this book and what form it initially took. Was it always written non-chronologically? Yes, it began in roughly 2010 or 11. I came up with the title and I wrote about 20 pages and it was terrible. And the only thing I saved was one very short passage about the sun coming through the trees and the pattern, this pattern of it being sort of out of strict chronological order, but it was always a very specific order. A couple of people referred to the order as something like random, and it could not be less random. It's supposed to feel the way memories feel. They happen in the present tense, because when, you know, we never exist in the past or the future. We only exist now. So if we play a tape in our heads, it's happening in the present tense. So I tried to make sure that they happened, were written in the present tense, and then I also didn't add anything to them that I would not have realized in the moment. So there are a lot of places where I added things and then took it out later when I realized it was, for want of a better term, false. Yeah, it's interesting to hear you say that because, of course, I noted that it's the tense of the book is present. A few of the fragments seem, though, to have a bit of recollection built in or to build from a present to then in the future, this happened or like a, to lead on a path of memory. So there's a very unfortunate story about your friend who died from eating peanut sauce. But it starts with meeting her, I believe, in second grade. Yeah, I think there are some places where even the verb tense changes and there there is a little bit of framing or telescoping added because... Because when we record memories, I, I sound like I'm a scientist. I don't know what the fuck I'm talking about, but we record memories and then we re-record them and we rewrite them and we record them and who knows what the thing was actually like. So some framing gets built into the memory, especially if they're really early memories, you know. I often wondered, I throughout my entire life, I've wondered like, do I remember less than other people from my early days? Do I remember more? Uh, probably it feels like I remember less than other people. And there are people who you know swear they remember being born or they remember being a week old, which I'm always like, yeah, sure you do. I have like one image from a couple of years in there. But so with Kate Brodsky, the young woman who died, that was a very early memory. I mean, I think it's the first time I remember flirting or, or even having a sort of an exchange that felt vaguely sexual or romantic or affective or whatever you want to call it and passing each other a note on the beach. And so that was sort of, unfortunately, this is the brutality of memory and of life itself. Like by the time I was really recalling that memory and telling for instance, Deborah, when we started dating, you know, I was telling her about somebody who had already died. I was only 23 at the time. But so the framing is sort of, you know, it's hard to know where to, and that, there was no actual scientific process in cutting off these things or making them all conform to a pattern. It just had to feel right. It's just exactly like playing music. Like you sort of play in key and you sort of play in time. Although some of the best things you do are out of key and out of time. But the pattern also was musical. And it was also in the same way, not random at all. Like it had to feel right. Most of the writing happened though in 2020 when uh, Deborah, the mother of my kids became very ill. She asked me to finish the memoir or to really, to write it, you know, it really wasn't even started. And so I wrote it very quickly about six, seven weeks. And then a bunch of rewriting was done after she died early this year, actually 2023, I did a pretty substantial subtraction and a whole bunch of new stuff went in to make it something for people other than you know, my immediate family to understand and read. I took out some very juicy insults that didn't need to go outside of the, the family circle. And there are some obscure, weird kind of 
just tone problems. It wasn't, <laughs> you know, it's a real ego crusher, but also a real, a real opportunity when you read. One reason I love the book process so much is, you know, having the chance to put it away and then look at it again, which you can't do. I mean, albums are the closest things to books, but albums usually somebody wants you to put it out soonish. Not always. I'm definitely in the middle of mixing an album that no one has been bugging anybody for, so I shouldn't say that. But the chance to, to go away for a year and come back, actually, the album's the same thing, so they are exactly the same. You can really, it's easier to say, like, wow, okay, that entire thing is terrible. Whereas the next day, you're still hoping, oh, that was, I think I nailed it. And then a year later, you're like, bro, you didn't even get it. Like, <laughs> let's take that out. And it's great to put something on the shelf and know that you basically got all the dead spots out that you could. And I'm proud of it. I'm, I'm very proud of the book. But part of that has to do with going as slowly as, as I needed to go. But when, to finish answering your very first question, I went through a process earlier this year. And when it was done, it felt in the same way that albums feel done. And like, they can't get shorter or longer. Like the tone is there. Like there's a point at which each successive choice obviates other choices. Like you can't get to the end of the album and be like, okay, we're going to add a four minute dance track. Like you can't do that unless you want to screw up the whole record. I mean, the CD era, that kind of thing was, was fine. And it can be fine, but it's got to make sense. And by the time I was at the end of this process, it felt very over. It was very, very satisfying to hand something in and be like, it is absolutely, there's no reason to expand or revise this. We are now done. Good luck out there, kid. It's on you. Go. Yeah. Well, it does feel very done and complete, you know, even though it, it is a fragmented book. It's such a full-bodied offering of a life. Did you write these fragments in the order they appear, or did you have to work more sequentially and then kind of remix everything in the order it appears? The version I gave Deborah, the first version, was basically written in that order. The version that exists now is a little bit more out of order. The beginning and end have always been the same, and there are big chunks that are roughly the same sort of order. But... um. I added the long uh, intentionality section, the one that's like the Joe Brainerd poem, I remember. I think that was the last thing I added because I was rereading it and it occurred to me like, okay, imagine you don't know, not only do you not know me, you don't know anything about anything. Like this is just a book on your friend's table and you pick it up. I thought, would someone know that this is like a memoir of someone's life, their entire life? As you know, I'm not dead yet, but you know, up to now still alive, but the whole thing. And I said, okay, let me write a section that goes through the whole life as quickly as I can, which also enabled me to cut. It was kind of like a stew because I got to use little pieces that were sitting there. And this has come up with other writers and I want to talk a little bit more about it. You know, just the sentence that I thought maybe would be a big scene or like a fuller scene, not big, just like I would write more and that would be a page or two in a scene. And then over time I realized like, no, the whole story is better and complete. Like if I tell you, yeah, I was walking down the street and, and this cop just hit me on a scooter. That's a whole story. It doesn't necessarily get better if I say, oh, and I was carrying my laundry and I was kind of tired. Like, it's much better if I'm just like, there you go. And so there were a bunch of fragments that worked on their own. And I put them all together in the I Remember section. I put that at the beginning just so that if you picked it up and wondered what were the sort of the brackets, the frame of what you were reading, well, this piece will tell you sort of roughly where you're going from and to kind of like a subway map. And then I could get back to what I was doing. And I liked having that in there early on. But uh, a lot of the pieces basically kind of stayed where they are. And I can't explain exactly why other than, you know, each one felt right next to the other one. And then when I would try to detach it and move it too far, it would kind of want to go back home and unless it did need to move. I Remember is one of my favorite books. And I, I think it, it does this job of being personal and yet very much being kind of this document of a specific generation and then translating later you know when when I read it I learned things about the time that Joe Brainerd grew up and I wondered if you had a similar aim or desire or kind of like editing tool of, of wanting to speak for a collective but also wanting to be honest to yourself you know is that you say you took some things out did you take things out because they were just too kind of hermeneutic or did you feel like your story is average enough that it would speak kind of for many people of your generation, speak to people who, who shared, you know, 
the 90s even. I love how you have this thing where you're like, my 90s, my 80s, my 70s, kind of putting it both in a time signature that we all are familiar with a decade, but then personalizing it. How did you walk that line? Well, my 90s is a phrase that jumped in my head specifically because of Deborah's death, because we started dating officially on January 1st, 1990. And we worked together for a chunk of that time, like in the same office, a place called the Families and Work Institute. And so her death is obviously bad for obvious reasons, but one specifically very disorienting feature of that is that it feels like somebody took my 90s, like a cassette tape, and then like deleted it and erased it. Because the person I was with almost every day in the 1990s is now gone. And you know, the guys in my band are around, my kid, there was only Sam and he was either zero or three at most. And we have friends, but a huge, you know, someone else is the person, if you're close to them, who kind of has the other half of your memory. I do feel in some ways like I don't have my 90s because Deborah's not here to confirm and reflect those memories. And some of that stuff is obviously most acute with our kids. But um, I wrote down Malampo because she loved Malampo. I wrote down the songs she loved because she loved them. And my 90s, I meant that it's funny to your question about like speaking for a larger group of people, the opposite. I meant like my 90s is like an addition of one and it's kind of <laughs> damaged now. And that's kind of heartbreaking or it's, it is what it is. Heartbreaking feels right now in the context of what's going on, like a melodramatic word that I shouldn't be using, but it is what it is. I haven't actually thought about whether or not I represent anyone other than kind of New Yorkers. I think the only time I thought about, am I representing a group? Cause I wouldn't be so bold as to assume I could speak for anyone other than myself. I guess I thought sometimes, of, yeah, about people who you know, remember juniors before. I mean, Brooklyn, for instance, is kind of a big one. Like when I was a kid, I'm going to be so bold as to say up until like 9-11, just, you know, a nice marker. Brooklyn was like a place people lived. It didn't have this like pickles and mustaches type of vibe, like, and people talking about podcasters and annoying people because they didn't live there. You know, it was a place... It was a place where people had their homes and a lot of people didn't even want to come to Brooklyn because they were terrified of it being dangerous or far away. So Brooklyn was kind of invisible other than Welcome Back Cotter, you know. It was just where we lived and then we went into the city to go to shows or to play shows, you know. Like for instance, when Uwe was around the first time, which would be 1990 to 2003, roughly, but we didn't play Brooklyn once. There was nowhere to play. We <laughs> played in the city. That's that's where, the, you know, now it's almost the reverse. Now people, when they're gigging, I feel like they're, if they're in a band, they're playing most often in Brooklyn. It's strange. So that's the kind of thing I want, you know, people to remember. People to remember when Sounds was on St. Mark's or when Veselka was good. Sorry. You know, there's a lot of stuff to remember, especially the, uh, the relatively brief window when there were dance clubs that were very relatively cheap social places and are, you know, my default activity as a teenager was just going out to the club. But now that means like you're going to a strip club or you're going to a fancy bottle service club, going to the club. When I was a kid, it meant almost the exact opposite. It was like, you know, Danceteria wasn't expensive. It wasn't even that exclusive. Like these are places you would go and hang out because they were big and there was music and I loved dancing. But also like you could sit down on a couch for an hour and just like have one beer. Like it was not expensive to go out. And if you had no other thing to do, you might as well go to one of these places because they were fun to hang out and there were new records that nobody else had and girls were cute and it was really fun. And then it became, clubs became about exclusivity and then also hip hop changed the sort of the social map of clubs. But before all of that happened, they were these like really awesome, big, friendly places. But I, I understand now having that historical perspective that that even didn't last very long. So the kind of thing, you know, it's very easy and I talk a lot about not falling prey to nostalgia, it's easy for me. And I have certainly over time been like, oh, those were the days. But it was just the weird window that I was a kid during, which is very important to hang on to because I don't think that like kids nowadays are having a better or worse time than me or they're less or more smart or anything like that. They have a different way of organizing their time. That was just a specific thing that almost really, really quickly in the 90s already it was gone. And I missed it because I love dancing. And I also love that kind of sociality that that it wasn't exclusive and that things were a little bit open and unbounded. You didn't have to decide that you were going to drink or you were going to dance or that you were going to pay 
$100 or something. Like you could just go somewhere and be with your friends and and there would be this this time, time unfolded in this beautiful way. I miss all of that, but I don't, you know, like anytime, you know, the golden days is a terrifying psychic trap to fall into. And I don't, I don't like going to the golden days move, but do I miss those specific places? Yeah. And I do wish that every man, woman, and child in the universe could go to dance interior at least once because you would enjoy life more and you would be more optimistic. Mm-hmm. Something that doesn't necessarily seem better or worse, but does seem of another era in the way you grew up is just the freedom that your parents allowed you. You know, you got this job at 13, you were working at a printer. Well, yeah, it's not like I, want, <laughs> it's not like I wanted that job. I mean, n- none of my friends work. Your parents needed you to get a job, but right. it actually sounds like an amazing experience. Yeah, I found out that adults were scamming. I was like, wait, jobs aren't hard at all. <laughs> you guys are totally, oh my God. As the rappers would say, you are fronting, my friends. You're just, you're, you go to work and you make it seem like it's fancy with a briefcase. You're just goofing off and smoking and going to lunch. Like, you ain't doing shit. Like, come on, give me a break. You're not doing anything. Except, you know, when you would be busy and a printing plant was a, a wild place to work because it was physical labor. I helped run this, the photo room. I don't know if anyone does anything like this anymore. We made these massive negatives and then burned the plates from the negatives. And when a job was really cranking away, like there would be periods of, you know, activity, but then a lot of it would be standing around just talking a bunch of nonsense with people or going out to lunch or, and even the guys who worked on the presses, once they loaded up a plate and started the paper going through, they were just standing there making sure it didn't break. I think the guys who worked the hardest were the people and this is still true in terms of circulation and actual consumer goods, like the people loading and unloading things are the people who never really get to stop working. Like they got to bring the paper in before it's printed. Then they got to take the stuff that has been printed out to the truck. And like, those are hard jobs. There was always somebody lifting something. I think the lifting jobs are still top, top effort thing, but they had breaks too. Anyway, it was, it was great to have my own money. It was great to overcome a terrifying fear. I was absolutely out of my mind with fear and misery the first two days because I didn't know what they were going to have me do. And they had me killing weeds and they were awful to me. And it felt Dickensian in a not cute way. I was really scared and bummed. And I was like, shit, I feel too young for my life to be over. I was 13. I didn't know anything. I was like, why am I working? No one's supposed to be working. But once I realized like it was going to be fine and I was getting this check every week, I was like, this is amazing. And it it really aided me later in life because I wasn't afraid. I was like, I'll get a job, whatever it is. Like maybe I'll get a fancy job. Maybe I'll get a, you know, a job in a rehab facility, which I've also had, like, I'll find one. I'll pay the rent somehow. And having that confidence and sort of cracking that code, also just the fellowship of working people. Like just, I like going to work and I still like going to work and hanging out with people. I love it. Yeah. It sounded like a great experience to have early on, although at the same time, taking the subway to this far, far away place or a train and a subway and a bus and- um, a perfect reading time, great reading time. <laughs> yeah, also, I think that's another thing of the difference, you know, not necessarily worse or better, but just having time now, you would have your phone or a teenager would likely have their phone and, and not necessarily be reading the classics on those uh, commutes. I think the olds are more on their phones than the youngs. That's my, my observational, I mean, my kids and my wife's kids, I think they're better at being off their phones in many ways than we are, depending. Although I also think at this point we can just, I think in some ways this issue should be maybe shelved for the rest of time because we're all on our phones because that's where life is. And I, I don't think it's, I don't think we need to read any more essays about attention deficit disorder and multitasking. Like it's just where life is and it's fine. And everyone needs to calm down. I mean, cars, can you imagine how terrified people were when cars came around? You know, we don't still read essays about cars. What's up with that? Like, although I guess we do with pedestrian death, but you know what I'm saying? Like, I think at a certain point you adapt to the technology that is there and you move on and people can have fulfilling lives with television and cars and dishwashers and phones. And you know what I mean? Of course, although it doesn't mean, I mean, cars are very destructive. I hate cars. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. I hate cars, gas is a part of the reason uh, for global warming. So it's not as though they're with it without issue. Right. If I said to you, Kate, though, I got this incredible essay. It's about cars. You'd be like, I don't, feel, <laughs> I don't want to read that. Thank you very much for the tip. You'd be like, I, I think I've made peace with cars. I guess I mean, like the process at a certain point, the complaining is like an avoiding of real work. Like 
You know what I mean? Like just also just coming from the loose whatever cohort community of people who write pieces about stuff. I have a very different issue about digital life. You're listening to the LARB Radio Hour. We've been speaking with Sasha Frere-Jones, author of Earlier. We'll return to that conversation in just a moment, but first we had this week's book recommendation. We have director Nicole Noonan back with us on the line today. Nicole is the director most recently of The Disappearance of Cher Height, but she joins us today for this week's book recommendation. So Nicole, what book are you recommending? Well, the book I just finished and I can't stop telling everyone I know about it, and I feel like it's up there in my top 10 greatest books of all time, is um, Every Good Boy Does Fine by Jeremy Denk, the concert pianist. It's his autobiography of his life in music lessons, and it follows him from the time he's a little boy learning how to play the piano up through getting his doctorate at Juilliard. And it's one of the most beautiful books I've ever read because it really puts you in his point of view at the time he's just making really profound emotional and intellectual discoveries about art and music and about himself through the painful process of trying to master the piano and kind of ending up discovering that he has to learn how to be imperfect, not just perfect, and um, discovering his own sexuality and all kinds of things, but really through the prism of this like joyous discovery of the depth of classical music, which he then shares with you. So you'll end up learning about, you know, Brahms and Mozart and Bach and all these composers and how they constructed narratives. And one of the most brilliant things about the book is that Denk then constructs the narrative of his book using a lot of the techniques that he's making you understand and explore with him in classical music. So I really can't recommend it more. That sounds super fascinating. Were you someone who tried to learn or do you currently play the piano? Yeah, I did. I took piano lessons all the way through high school. And so I could relate to a lot of the suffering and the, you know, <laughs> he, he just has these great things where like he talks about how painful it is to have people saying, you know, play with a metronome, learn the rhythm. And then how mm-hmm. he had to learn both when not to have, not to hold the rhythm and to make his own choices about deviating from it artistically. But then he also had to finally come to learn that the kind of tyranny of like a regular counting rhythm is actually mm-hmm. like something that then provides a lot of freedom and beauty in music. And so, and then he makes those things apply to his telling of the story of his own life. So it's very beautiful. And I think he, whether you tried to play the piano or not, I think most people would find it really, really fascinating and relatable. Well, that's what I was going to say. I love the note about leaning into the imperfection or not, which is not always how like piano is taught necessarily. <laughs> you know, and I remember as like a younger person when I realized that it would actually be, this is only a younger person could have thought that it wouldn't be this way, but that in fact, learning to play Rachmaninoff's Piano Concerto Number no. 2 was going to be, I don't know, like kind of hard. And that in fact, my hands were just not, did not have the span to reach like across those octaves. I just lost all faith in my ability to play piano. So I was like, so being reminded that it's like the imperfections and that applies to the artist's life in general, like to lean into imperfections is a great one. So thank you so much for this recommendation. Can you give us the author and the title one more time? Jeremy Denk is the author, and Every Good Boy Does Fine is the title. Thank you so much. We've been speaking with Nicole Noonan, director most recently of The Disappearance of Cher Heights. You're listening to the LARB Radio Hour. We now return to our conversation with Sasha Frere-Jones, author of Earlier, Let's go back to your parents who gave you this enormous amount of freedom. And um, I think when you were saying that you were trying to not know more in the recollections than you did at the time, the case in point to me is your parents' lives, their finances, what was happening with them there. You know, your father's sexuality is referenced, but it's never completely explained. We don't know exactly. Your parents seem to have money lose it. And I'm curious about their marriage. Maybe there's something that's that's not completely filled in here and, and how it worked and, and what they were like as parents. Shockingly, you're the first person to ask me about my parents, which is a little wild. 
considering that they're my parents. And of course, that was the stuff I was most worried about writing down. And, you know, maybe I'll get an angry phone call from a relative at some point. My mom didn't comment about any of that when she read the book. Yeah, my dad died in, uh, I mean, the first really sudden death of my life, much more sudden than Deborah's, was my dad, because he just died basically out of nowhere when I was 30, right before Sam, my first kid, was born. That was bad. I mean, Deborah was sick for five months. But, you know, I've had two kind of significant deaths. You know, I'm not that young, so it's not exactly shocking at all because people are always dying. But, yeah, I mean, who knows what happened? They didn't, they didn't tell us a whole lot, but they were very loving. I mean, as a parent who's now probably like, you know, not that far away, even from being a grandparent, maybe that's no pressure on the kids, but I'm just saying like, my kids are 26 and 23. And my wife's father is, he's been struggling. He's in the hospital right now. Like I have a lot of sympathy for all parents and I have more sympathy for my parents now than I did even five years ago, 10 years ago. So I also think a lot about, I'm a, a member of a a fellowship that's at the beginning of the phone book, as Craig Ferguson said, you know, I hear a lot of stories about how one of the most life-changing, you know, I hear a lot of shares in AA, and one that really actually changed my life was a woman described her, uh, I'm not going to offer the details because they're not mine to share, and I'm certainly not about to identify anybody, but her mother was awful to her. And she tells like a 20-minute just horror story about this and said, but she did, she was doing the best she could. You know, she didn't put me in a home. She kept me in, in the house. And I was like, holy guacamole. Like, imagine seeing life that way and looking at everyone you deal with and, and saying, oh, wow, this person is hurting. They're trying and they're doing the best they can, right? Instead of constantly complaining, which I think we're in some ways culturally encouraged to complain and be resentful. I started seeing my parents really differently. So there were definitely things that happened that really worried me and freaked me out, like going to work when I was 13. And basically not being in the know, like we'd have a house and then we wouldn't have a house. And then we'd be in an even smaller apartment. I'd be like, what is going on? Like, I don't, you know, in terms of my dad's sexuality, that was all stuff that like, I had to be a private eye to figure that out, finding magazines and whatnot. Although I came back from college, the first time I came back from college, like that would have been Thanksgiving or Christmas break, I guess. I don't remember which one. You know, I had been around other people for three months and I was in this just the novelty of the situation was was thrilling to me. I was I wasn't homesick at all. I was happy as heck. I was also really happy to come home. And I my dad came out of the apartment in this seersucker suit, and I was like, "Oh man, you are gay as hell. How did I not <laughs> see this before? You are fruity, my friend. Like it just hit me." But you know, I say that with love because like everyone I grew up around was gay because I was around a church and opera, and I make a point in in the book that this is one of those things that's behind a wall that no one's going to get back to this moment. I mean, you could, you could bring back cheap dancing clubs, right? You cannot bring back the moment where I was buying hip hop records from a bunch of gay disco DJs who did not want to sell me these records at all. But all of the guys that like Vinyl Mania and J&R and Rock Downtown records, which is not the same as Downstairs records, which are near each other. It was very confusing. Neither of them were downtown either. And Downstairs was upstairs. It was really confusing. But anyway, like, what was there, it's the thing before the thing is what brings the thing into existence. Meaning when the Treacherous Three become a recording act, they dress like the Temptations. They don't dress like rappers because there are no rappers. So the first people to sell rap records weren't rap people. There were no rap anythings. They were disco DJs. So they're selling these records based on disco records. And they mostly hated them. And they'd play them for me and be like, here, here's whatever the fearless morons, whatever they're called, like, get out of here, kid. Anyway, so yeah, my parents though, I mean, they were, they sent me to school and St. Anne's is sort of was my home in many ways. That's where I sort of became a theater kid and learned about music and my friends were there and like, that was my happy place. It was just my safe zone where, you know, my life for 12 years happened. And just the act of sending me to that school, which was fairly expensive for us, was great. I loved Fort Greene. Like I was a happy kid. They did the important stuff and they were very loving. I mean, a little out to lunch, but that's okay. I mean, I hear other people's stories and I think, well, what am I complaining about? And I would rather end every day on that note. Like, what am I, like, I have nothing to complain about. I mean, I, I truly believe that. And so, so minor resentments I had about things they did or didn't do are now very much in the, you know, they were great to me. They, and they were, my dad especially was incredibly supportive and loving. He didn't like me being in a band. He wanted me to be a writer. And then he died right as I started getting work as a writer. So, sorry, dad. 
And he told you at 12 that you were a writer. Yeah, that freaked me out. How did he know that? That was too much. I don't know. He should have kept that to himself. I mean, that kind of encouragement, like, that's just too much. Also, I was like, how do you know what I am? I'm 12. And I think that kind of stuff actually made me want to be in a band more because, you know, you don't want to do what your parents tell you to do. Well, that's maybe what he wanted to do, right? Because he was a copywriter, but he wanted to be a writer writer. Right. And the writing stuff, you know, it went real really quickly. I, had, I won this prize for the playwriting thing when I was 16 or whatever. And, and people were nice to me about the writing, but that... I kind of just put it down almost instantly and did weird semiotic stuff and started being in a band because I didn't know what to do with the writing other than theater. And then when theater didn't seem like it was going to happen, I didn't have a desire to write essays or although I loved criticism, I ended up falling in love with theory and sort of poetry. But I, I didn't see any like I didn't know what to do with that, whereas I could imagine, OK, I'll be in a band. I know what to do with that. I know how to make records and go on stage. And I was doing that stuff already when I was 18, 19. And so it, it seemed Logical, except for the part where it doesn't make any money, which has never been my strong suit. But I, I could imagine, I imagine exactly what happened, which is I'll get a day job and I'll be in a band. And that's what I did. And that was the kind of like, let's put on a show mindset I was raised with. So at a certain point, though, you realize like, oh, wow, this really isn't going to be a career. Like I, you know, unless I end up on a major label or, you know, end up having a hit in some kind of strange fluke way. And even those guys, like, you know, you meet a few bands and you're like, okay, there's no stable income here. I got to, I got to think of something else, which is where people who are creative start thinking of, you know, teaching gigs or whatever. And, and I stumbled into writing reviews of things. And how did that take shape or at what point did you realize that that was, you know, an equal passion to music. I, I don't think I realized before reading this book how much of a musician you really are. I mean, that that seems like in some ways your main pursuit, but maybe I'm wrong and the writing and music are, are equal. I'm curious how that, at what point you you felt that you were, um, had kind of gone further down the writing chute? I think the confusion is natural because I myself am still confused and I've never a hundred percent. I mean, the only time I felt a hundred percent like I knew what I was going to do was when I was 16 and I was in plays and I was writing them and I thought theater was going to be it. Like I actually felt that was the most convinced and most confident I was ever about anything. I didn't have a plan B and I just happened to go to a school where right or wrong, I didn't like the theater department. That may be unfair to the Brown Theater Department of 1984. My apologies if that's just not fair, guys. But, you know, I walked into an audition and I was like, I've been making, doing theater with incredible other kids and teachers who blew my mind. And I was like, this is like three years backwards. Like, I'm not going to do this nonsense. Typically opinionated of me. And after that, I was always kind of like, I don't know, this is like, uh, I like being in a band, but the guys don't like talking about what we're doing. And I don't like that. It still bugs me because musicians really don't like talking. Whereas in the theater, you have notes and you're like, Let's talk about it. I like talking about things. You can see, I, I like to yak. I like to know what's going on. I like to work on things and make them better. So sue me. And so the stuff that really moves me that I want to play is not particularly commercial music. I think it's a little bit like this memoir, like I was in an instrumental band. Uwe was an instrumental band, largely. I think it's very approachable music. I don't think it's difficult or hostile, but you know, there are people who, I remember a, wait, a waitstaff person once said to me, I gave her the CD, and she gave it back and she said, I don't know, the wordless music, you know, that's hard for me. And, and as obvious, I mean, I knew I was in a band without singing mostly, but I never thought of it as like, oh, wow, this category is actually seems inhospitable to people. And that surprised me. You know what I'm saying? Like, so I'm always sort of in these strange places where I, I can be happy about it, but I, I'm always asking myself, it's like, you know, that book, Are You My Mother? I'm always like, are you my career? Are you my metier? Like, I don't know. Like, you know, if a bunch of people who were excited by something came up to me, I'm like, okay, that could be my job. <laughs> like, if people are committed to doing a thing and excited and like their ideas and energy flowing, that's my job. That's fine. You know what I'm saying? So the critic thing, I liked writing. I don't particularly love critics or I don't feel like it's a legacy. There are people who are very invested in the legacy of criticism and I'm not one of those people. If it didn't pay the rent, I never would have done it. I didn't do it because it was a, you might be right. It's not the equal of music. I have to play music. I have the guitar hanging right there. I've never, I haven't gone a day in my life since I was 10 
not with an instrument in my hands. I also haven't really gone that many days without writing, so they're pretty much even. But the reason you do them and writing this book felt like, you know, I'm actually writing two things now. <laughs> I have a lot of stuff to write. I'm supposed to be writing a book about Bob Dylan. We'll see what happens. I'm not going to say anything more about that. But, you know, recent events have, have made me turn to these two other pieces of writing that nobody wants, nobody asked for them. And I was talking to some friends this morning, and one of my friends, uh, this brilliant woman, Hannah Zeeben, who has a magazine called Parapraxis, she was like, well, that's the best kind of book. Like, nobody asked for it. Like, you're writing it for the right reason. And I was like, yeah, I... <laughs> but, like, that may be true, because it does feel like the thing you do without anybody saying anything, without you even saying anything to yourself, and that anxious, like, what am I going to do today? Wait, like, I just... You know what? It feels like a relief. Like people say, oh, I do this for therapy. Like that's how I feel when I pick up my guitar and my bass. Or that's how I feel when I've been working on this series of essays that I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. But that feels, I feel like I'm getting closer to that sort of teenage theater feeling in what has been happening in the last few years in terms of the music and the writing, especially this book. Like I feel very, it's not just that I'm proud of it or happy or I think it's good or something like that. It's like, I feel really comfortable saying to someone like, here's my book. It's my photograph on the cover. It's my title. Everything in it is my fault. Nobody pressured me to do a goddamn thing. Like this is for better or worse, this is me, you know? And that feels like I want to do more of what things that feel like that. And having them be small and not super successful is fine. It would also be fine if Greta Gerwig wants to option it. Holler, like, I'm ready. Let's go. <laughs> this is, uh, yeah, earlier directed by Greta. You know, these these weird books do, it's the one of the only ways that people sort of on one side of the fence get over to the manicured lawn side of the fence is that somebody in TV or film options in bands, it happened with licensing. Speaking of that, to go back to like, you know, non-nostalgia nostalgia here there's this moment where you're talking about the music that you and deborah love in the 90s and how it's like suddenly in the 90s like this all this kind of more uh, marginal music that you love gravitates towards the mainstream mm -hmm. and um you list all these songs and there was this emf song actually that you list that i <laughs> remember loving unbelievable and uh, at the time i didn't understand what it was related to like how it had the manchester feel i didn't get it i just it was a radio single when i was young and i listened to it again yesterday and it was like it's such an awesome song and that particular moment of kind of like the mainstream not being full of or I mean, I don't know all of it being cool, but just things that actually related more to the subculture sidelines, that kind of feeling. And I wonder if you feel like that exists now. It's a really interesting question. I'll tell you quickly a, f a story I didn't put in about Unbelievable that's really fun is that the band I was in, Dolores, that actually moved to New York and existed just as Uwe started. One of the guys in Uwe was in Dolores. The singer of the band, this guy named Tim Thomas, brilliant talented fella, he got a chance to audition as an MTV VJ. And he did like one or two live actual on the air shows. And me and one of the other guys in Dolores, we were jerks. We liked to tease each other a lot. And it's because of Tim going on and doing this. And the first song he introduced was unbelievable. We tortured Tim for just years, just going, it's unbelievable. <laughs> like we'd see him walking and like, also, it's just that was that chorus or that pre-chorus moment. It's actually not the chorus. The chorus is actually oddly instrumental. It's just that riff. But, you know, the music stops and he get with that really thick accent. It's unbelievable or you're unbelievable, whatever it is. In Manchester culture being this strange and rave culture being this filtering back of American house and hip hop into this other thing that had its own legit, weird, beautiful sensibility. I mean, that's just a great moment. Although I think I was kind of snooty about it at the time because I was like, I would listen to actual house and actual hip hop. I was like, this is fake dance music. I don't want to hear these bands with guys wearing Adidas and bucket hats playing. Get the heck out of here. Meanwhile, being in a band, an American band doing exactly that, which was kind of what Uwe was in many ways. Yeah, the subculture. I mean, I'm interested right now. I mean, I don't know, you know, and then Nirvana happens the next year. Like, okay, so what do you do with all these things? And if you get trapped into the cool framing, you're committing sort of like spiritual suicide because who cares if it's cool? I think of someone like 
Doja Cat or Megan Thee Stallion or Lil Nas X. And I think these people are as smart or smarter and more weird and interesting than many of the counterculture figures from my youth. So, you know, I had a crude sort of, I don't know if it's a metaphor, is it a metaphor? Image? Sort of an aid to thinking. I don't know if I put it in the book or not because I can't remember what's in the book or not because it all happened to me. So I'm like, maybe I told you this. Maybe it's in the book. Maybe it's not. But anyway, Tinkerbell, like I always thought like, Tinkerbell flies around. And if Tinkerbell is the thing you're interested in, you know, Grill Marcus's Lipstick Traces is a great example of this. Like he's locating punk energy in a monk and then in Dada and then Situationism. And then, and the monk sort of has the name John Lydon, which is sort of, you know, a, a literary kind of pun, but he's a pretty hardcore monk. And then you get John Lydon. So that, I think I'm more interested in, I'm more interested in people than things. And I'm more interested in energies than forms. So a Doja Cat to me is as whatever punk or cool, whatever that crap I grew up with, whatever that was supposed to mean, I would not want to be alive now and be like, oh, I wish I could listen to Stiff Little Fingers and not liking Doja Cat because Doja Cat is a thousand times better than Stiff Little Fingers. So like the point is the energy of intelligence and resistance and sort of consciousness, critical consciousness that exists in all of these mainstream acts. And in some ways it defeats the cool hunters because... You know, what if the answer is like, well, it's right in front of your face. Like, it's not some rare pressing from Belgium from a jail in 1903 or whatever that you're looking for. Like, what if the smartest person is right in front of you, standing next to the worst person? Like, imagine Doja Cat on Elon Musk's Twitter. Like, you've got night and day there. Like, so staying sensitive and aware of what's actually going on is very important to me as just a human being. Whether or not I can make money writing about it is very much besides the point. I also love Unbelievable by EMF Kids. Coming up next, <laughs> um, a rock block of the laws. I also thought it was, I mean, I don't want to go off too much on this, but I just have to note that I thought it was hilarious that you missed opening for the Pixies, that your oh, band boy. mixed opening for the Pixies because you thought they weren't cool enough and you didn't get to check out your music because there wasn't the internet. So you didn't know what they actually sounded like. I thought that was hilarious. You remember the part where I told you we were jerks? We were jerks. We were assholes. Like, come on. Like, but you know, we, 4AD, I mean, in our defense, there's no defense. And thank God it, it turned out we didn't open for them. But, and thank God actually that we saw the show. Like it was great being there for like the launch of a band. And my God, we listened to the first EP and the first album in that sandwich shop so many times. That and In My Tribe by 10,000 Maniacs. But um, this is a thing that will, it will be impossible to imagine that you don't know things. So we hear there's a, a label called 4AD, everything on the label, not everything, but a lot of the stuff on the label is basically like a lot of echo, a lot of like the rhythms are very submerged and it's like this dreamy stuff, the Cocteau Twins being the most sort of emblematic, especially at the time because they hadn't put out a bunch of the stuff that they later then put out. So Cocteau Twins was basically what I thought of when someone said 4AD and someone was like, the Pixies. The Pixies, like the name, I assumed that they would just be like a couple of people with pedals, you know, singing in crazy high voices and made up words and stuff. And that's not what the Pixies were at all. And they were ferocious. They were so, they were hard as hell. And they were about a thousand times better than, and there were a lot of great bands playing at the time. I shouldn't say they're better than, but they were so much better than we expected them to be. And it was uh, a humbling moment. And I'm I'm glad we didn't do that one, but I'm sorry that we didn't get to open for Terrence Trent Darby because I think that actually would have been really fun. And like, even if we, especially if we had made people mad, I think that would have been kind of fruitful because there's actually more commonality with his music in some ways, but you know, youthful arrogance. There's a line here that I, I love so much about anxiety. And you say, wherever you stash it, you will sense it. And I thought that was so wise. Another nice thing about the book being in fragments is that you don't really have to make this a recovery memoir or there's a whole section where you're in a, you're institutionalized and that's so much the backdrop and the whole focus of that section really is the radio and the music you're listening to in this mental institution. I felt like that that is something that not writing something in a linear narrative or really sticking to any certain narrative formula allows here in this way where it's, um, and perhaps for some people that is true, that their struggles, their anxiety is, um, their addictions are 
not what they end up remembering as the most important thing of their lives. But I, I didn't want to ignore that aspect of the book. Yeah, as much as you could say, like, where your anxiety was stashed and, you know, this how big a part of kind of addiction and then coming to recovery has played in your life, where does it really fit in? Yeah, that part is me realizing I had anxiety when I was in college. That's a big one. I mean, my first thought about that is that people find, in every book, my book is not unique in this way, people find the book they want to read. I've said it many times, I want to put it on the record. It'll be recorded for posterity. Huge shout out to uh, my analyst, Leon, who also works with other members of my family. And he is such a great tool for understanding consciousness. And it's a joke. It's sort of like a, it's a one-liner kind of, but it's, man, it really gets into your head and starts changing how you see things. Anyway, it goes like this. When somebody tells you about you, about yourself, 95% of that is about them. And so is the other five. <laughs> so when people say, oh, you wrote a recovery memoir, well, they're looking for a recovery memoir. Oh, you wrote a grief memoir. There's not even barely any grief in it. They're looking for, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Oh, you wrote about financial insecurity. You wrote about New York. You wrote about music. Like, because it's a big fruit salad. I've never done a pie chart breakdown. I think, as my friend Elvia says, and I think she's right, what it's about more than anything in terms of a number of words is sandwiches. I think it's really largely about sandwiches. <laughs> I was going to note that, yeah. Yeah, what she alleges are my true love, and she is onto something. But the anxiety thing, I mean, the way I approach, and I wrote a long essay about quitting benzos in 2017 that I didn't put in the book because it doesn't fit. I thought quitting benzos would do it, but I had to go all the way and do the psych ward and then rehab and then AA, all of which is I could not be more grateful for because nothing has changed my life more than sobriety. I have nothing but good things to say about it. It's also incredibly hard. So my starting point with all this stuff is that I'm not even sure. I mean, I went, I became trained as a, it's called a case actor, a substance use disorder counselor. I was only able to use it for a short period before the pandemic came and I'm too old and I don't have enough hours, so I can't really get a job in a rehab facility, although I had one briefly. And I like that kind of work, but the way I look at it is we don't even know what alcoholism is. We only know that if you treat it like a disease, people get better. When we were being trained, one of the brilliant women there I was learning from said, you know, we call it a biopsychosocial disease, which means we don't know what it is because that's like calling it everything. <laughs> we don't know what it is. And I think that people, you know, the disease is being alive. Well, not the disease, the affliction is being alive. Being alive is incredibly painful. That's how I look at it. And so alcohol, for instance, is just very bad medicine for that. For someone like me, other people, they get away with it and God bless them. I wish, I only wish, I wish. So we gotta do stuff to deal with the pain of being alive. Being alive is a gift, but it's an extremely difficult, crazy gift to have. And I don't think a single human being deals with it easily. So anxiety is just a rational response to the crazy short-term gift of being alive. I stumbled eventually in my 50s into sobriety and now I know how to appreciate life and deal with it, which doesn't mean it's any, any easier, but I've got these tools and somehow stumbling through all of this has put me in a spot where I can deal with it, but I don't know how I, if someone had assigned me sobriety when I was 22, it's not like I would have said, thank you. I would have said, get the heck out of here. I don't want to do that. Like that does not seem like something I want to do. So I can see how other people deal with things, but another thing, one of the many, 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 many things about sobriety that helps is in early sobriety, I felt very evangelical, like, oh man, I'll take you to meeting. Oh boy, oh boy, come along, step right this way. You know, I figured it all out. A terrible position to ever take. Like the moment you feel like you have figured it all out, that's the red light should be flashing because you, my friend, have not figured anything out. And over time I realized like, okay, you know, the great news about sobriety is if you want to get sober, you absolutely can. The bad news is you have to do it, only you can. So like everything in life, I become less frustrated with other people because I, you're not going to do something unless you want to do it. Can I make you want to do it? Can I make you, Kate Wolf, do something? No, you would have to want to do it. I can be the model of something or offer you something or show you something, but you're simply not going to do it if somebody tells you to do it. So, And it's heartbreaking when you see people who you're almost certain would be happier if they were sober. But oddly, knowing the stakes much more intimately now, I find it paradoxically easier to let go of that. And so when I see someone who's sick and suffering, like, it's easier now for me to walk away because I think one thing that I learned in my own recovery and watching other people is one phrase, one sentence that pierces your consciousness 
Like someone saying to you like 10 years ago, 10 years before you get sober, someone's saying like, man, you seem like kind of a mess. It's like a dart stuck in your skull for the rest of your life because you know what they mean. You know what they mean and you can't forget that they said that. And that weirdly is a huge gift to you because it's like when people criticize you, like if someone said to me like, man, your book is kind of trash. I'd be like, that's not, no, it's not. I wouldn't even remember them saying that. But if someone points to something that is messed up and they notice it, that's going to haunt you forever. Cause you're like, oh my God, I can't believe somebody noticed that, but you know that it's true. That's, I don't know why I harped on this. I mean, everyone has anxiety. Honest to God, I think everything is fine. Like if, if it works for you. You know, there are people who can drink. I think that's awesome. My wife drinks and she becomes adorable and cute and she has two glasses and goes to bed. I've never had two glasses of wine. I think the first time I had a glass of wine, I had two bottles of wine. Like I don't, I can't do that. You know, my number is, as we say, my number is more. That's the number of times I want something. So I can't do that. So when I speak about somebody else's anxiety, like, I don't know. It looks like exercise for me, you know, very corny stuff. Like the doctor, when I was seven, what he told me works out. Like eat healthy, go to bed early, exercise. <laughs> like when I do that, I'm a happy boy. Everything's fine. <laughs> I'm a very standard issue, bog standard, basic ass bitch. That's me. Like nothing <laughs> fancy for me. I am happy when I do the most dullest, boring things. That's me. Other people can do rails of coke all night long and wake up happy as a jaybird. I don't know how to do that myself personally. That would make me very anxious nowadays, but it certainly seemed like a good idea once. <laughs> but, you know, then they sent me to the hospital in an ambulance. So not a good idea for me. But who am I to tell anyone what to do? <laughs> right. Well, to each his own, but I'm glad you found the, the path that is best for you. I guess just in closing, since I know this book was, was written for your ex-wife and, and very close friend, Deborah, and in that way that you said that kind of losing her makes it feel like you've lost this whole chunk of time or you're the other half of time kind of if you feel like there's something that evinces her in the book or that keeps her alive in the book or how you there's memory that's kind of like intentional and and that you want to cultivate when it comes to people you love i think i wonder you know just if this book goes towards that for you if there are other things that that you try to do to keep her alive with your children or yeah that's uh again i like that you called her my very close friend because that's how i think of her it's interesting it's like being a parent is sort of like the parts of the parachute falling away like you feel like nothing but a parent when they're infants and then when they're grown-ups walking around like taking you out to lunch like it's a little different and so I do think of Deborah now probably more often as my friend that I miss more than, you know, the mother of my kids, because that's sort of their memory to have. I don't know if that makes sense. You know, the book is just it's just a memoir. Like, I don't think I did do a good enough job of suggesting what she was like. I didn't because, you know, she asked me to write a memoir. So it's just it's just about me, for better or worse. Like she definitely didn't want to read about her herself being sick. So that was added or dying. So that was added after she she passed. But I didn't tell that many stories of us being together because that would have made her sad. She said that explicitly. So, or no, that's not fair. She said, I mean, we didn't actually, other than her getting married to her boyfriend, Van, we didn't see each other after she got diagnosed. She was diagnosed on her birthday, July 31st, 2020. And she died on January 4th of the following year. So that was five months, six months. And we talked on the phone, but we didn't actually sit down with each other. She thought it would be too difficult. And I have a whole set of feelings around whether I should have pushed on that one but you know she was dying I figured she got she got first dibs on what happened or didn't happen and with her own time on the planet she just thought it would be too hard so I didn't put in a lot of stories about us being happy together and I kind of regret that now you know that'll have to be for everyone's made the same joke but the next volume has to be called later so I'll put that into later but she was very uh you know, everyone talked at the funeral about how strong she was and what a force of nature she was and how it was kind of her way or the highway. And that was true. You'll notice we got divorced. So like that didn't always work out. <laughs> but, you know, she was I, I remember someone who was incredibly high spirited and positive and like she was the least mopey, sulky person I have ever met. I mean, I'm the I'm the sulky one. She she was 
she was just always had a great attitude and was la we laughed all the time together. We laughed all the time. And we had a really, our 90s were fun as heck. You know, she got us a fanciest job sort of towards the middle end of the, the decade. But we were just like two New York kids who like definitely came from some privileged spots, but also had to work. And I don't know, we cared about stuff, but also don't think we took ourselves very seriously. We didn't even take it very seriously when we had kids. We just thought we loved kids and wanted to have them. And then we had them like we, I don't know, we had a very kind of innocent 90s in some ways. And she was really goofy. Like, I don't know, I just, I really miss that person. That, I don't think that's in the book. And I didn't really think of it until you just asked me now. But one thing about writing a memoir is it's incredibly freeing because you write this stuff down and other people read it. And you're like, oh God, I've always wanted to tell you that story. And then you realize there are a thousand stories you didn't put in and you feel like you've done somebody wrong by not including them. Or you, you I didn't actually put in any, any really insulting stuff about almost anyone. I took that stuff out. I obscured a couple of names that are in the less than favorable sections. I was honest about Prince, but <laughs> he's dead. So, sorry. Oh God, we didn't even talk about that. We didn't even talk about that. Well, when you write later, we'll have to yeah. talk again, Sasha. I would love that. For now, I, I really appreciate you coming on. Thank you so much. I appreciate you reading the book so carefully. I really am touched. Thank you. That was Sasha Fair Jones. His memoir is called Earlier. Thanks for listening to the LARP Radio Hour. Subscribe to our show on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Spotify, or wherever else you get your podcasts. If you like the show, please rate us on Apple Podcasts to help us get the word out. And we'd love to hear from you. The producers at the LARP Radio Hour are Medea Ocher, Kate Wolf, and Eric Newman. Our executive producer is Alan Minsky. Our sound engineer is Matea Baim. Editorial production by Jake Levins. Our intro music was written and performed by Imogen Teasley Vlotten.